I'm honored to be with you today. It's November, a good month to remember Native peoples and be thankful for our lives and what we have. I am not going to be offering y'all a lot of gratitude today, however. No, this is a Unitarian Universalist fire and brimstone sort of sermon. Apologies if that wasn't what you expected. I'm here to talk about the sins of America. One of my seminary professors, Reverend Dr. Andre Johnson said to me a few years ago, Edie, you can say things that I as a black man cannot say. And so that's why I have to say this. And I know that you know the stories. There are countless names out there now from the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement with the acquittal of the murderer of Trayvon Martin, who was out walking from the store to get Skittles and tea, all the way to the seven-year-old little girl shot in her sleep in her own home, Ayanna Stanley Jones. My white friends, our souls and the soul of this nation are sorely in need of a wake-up call. There have been three different trials this month which are all relevant to Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and white supremacy in this country. The first of those is the trial of the three men who killed, or one could say lynched, Ahmaud Arbery as he was out jogging in his neighborhood. At one point before they fired the fatal shot, one of the men said, we have him trapped like a rat. This is the same language that was used in Nazi Germany to refer to people of Jewish descent, saying things such as vermin, rodents, speaking of the need to exterminate. Thankfully, the jury found the men guilty of Mr. Arbery's murder. They each face up to life in prison for chasing and then killing him. The second trial this month that I wanna draw your attention to is that of the white men who organized the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, where Heather Heyer was killed. The neo-Nazis who were on trial have used it as a recruitment opportunity. They have utilized white supremacist leaning people's sympathy to garner enthusiasm for their cause via podcasts and websites and blogs. And I am happy to report that the jury did find the defendants liable for more than $26 million in damages to the people of Charlottesville and the protesters who were present to speak out against racism. The third trial that I would like to draw your attention to is that of Kyle Rittenhouse, who at 17 years old, with the assistance of his mother, crossed state lines with a gun that someone illegally purchased for him. This is the kind of gun that nobody needs for simply protecting themselves, an AR-15, which is a semi-automatic rifle. He claimed he was going to Wisconsin to defend property at a car lot. In fact, when asked, there is video available that he claimed it was his job to defend the car lot, but he didn't stay there at the car lot. He went roaming around carrying the rifle in crowds of people who were protesting the police shooting of Jacob Blake, who was paralyzed by seven shots to his back as he was walking away from police officers. 
And a few weeks prior to the Rittenhouse killings, young Kyle is on video watching people leave a drugstore. And in that video, he states that these people are probably stealing, and he discusses how much he wishes he could shoot them. So I am going to hypothesize that this young man got all excited about defending law and order, which is a euphemism for making folks of color mind their place in the racialized hierarchy that we live in. And he went hunting. And then he shot and killed two unarmed people and gravely wounded another. And on the witness stand, this young man put on quite a show of crocodile tears, yet he never really managed to cry. He blubbered and squinted and wailed, and he acted very emotional. The judge called a 10-minute recess because of his behavior on the witness stand. His mother, also in the courtroom, added her histrionics to the show, laughing when she didn't think cameras were on her and wailing when she noticed that they were. I'm not making this up. It's easily verifiable with video that's out there all over the internet. And if you think I'm being overly harsh towards him, after white nationalists raised the $2 million to get him out of jail on bail, his mother took him to a bar where he was photographed raising white supremacist hand signals with members of the Proud Boys, a white nationalist group, as he wore a shirt that said free as expletive. I think what we are seeing at play in all three of these trials, where thankfully the first two saw some justice served, but specifically in Rittenhouse's fake tears and his mother's reinforcing with her white woman tears, is the absolute reproduction, protection, and farcical show that is white supremacy in action with honorable mention to male privilege. In the actions of the judge, defense lawyers, and jury, we are witnessing how the system of whiteness protects and defends its own. Because if Kyle Rittenhouse had been a black 17-year-old roaming around with an illegally acquired assault weapon, crossing state lines with the assistance of his mother, killing two men and severely wounding another, would he be alive right now? Would he have had a chance to be on trial? Would he be given the grace of innocent until proven guilty? I think every one of us already knows the answer to that question. So instead of digging deeper into the specific of these trials, which we could spend a great deal of time examining, I want to pivot instead and ask, can we put whiteness on trial? Because white supremacy sets up the game, twists the rules, lies about what's going on, and then brags about how justice works. So what if we put whiteness on trial instead? If we put whiteness on trial, we could make it answer for its crimes against humanity. I want whiteness to have to explain the raping, the stealing, the murdering the killing of the souls of black and indigenous and Asian and Latinx folk. I want whiteness itself on a witness stand where it isn't allowed to cry that it was only defending itself, that it is innocent, that it didn't mean any harm. Whiteness has run all the way out of excuses for the evil. Whiteness doesn't ever have a valid reason for continuing these obvious crimes. Recently, 
My friend Richard Douglas Jones said this. If you kill multiple people with an illegal firearm, you should go to jail unless you're white. Then the judge will tuck you in, read you a bedtime story. Remember this trial the next time you try to convince me that this racism stuff is just in my head. So how did we get here? I want to figure out how this mess is uniquely American because of course this country started with genocide and the theft of land from native peoples and then moved rapidly on to exploiting and stealing the labor and lives of people who were and are of African descent. Neither of these groups were ever intended to be American. And you could argue that they still aren't seen as American. Rittenhouse was referred to in the media as all American, a good boy, a helper, a boy with a bright future. Where was the assurance of a bright future for someone like Ahmaud Arbery? Why wasn't he equally considered worthy of protection? Well, he's not a real American. Real Americans have little pink cheeks and bright, blubbery yet strangely dry faces with confronted with what they've done wrong. How did the United States take this concept of race and racism and manage to make our prejudice so intensely horrible? We in the United States have done something so clever and yet so rotten in uniquely twisting the evil idea of racism in this country into a kind of caste system, a hierarchy that privileges people with skin the color of mine while punishing, mistreating, oppressing, discriminating, disproportionately imprisoning and murdering unarmed folks with official sanction of the state. This applies to anyone with a darker hue, especially if they are of African heritage. And this is systemic, not individual. It's in every facet of society from top to bottom, like a giant invisible web. And I'm not here to tell everybody they have to feel guilty for being white. We didn't choose this. Wasn't something we picked out when we were born. It came with the package. Our whiteness gets us a lot of unearned, unearned benefits, like not being shot and killed while walking or jogging in our neighborhood. Like being perceived as innocent until proven guilty, as opposed to being perceived as guilty until proven innocent. Hence the Black Lives Matter, or more accurately, the Black Lives Should Matter, but truly they still don't movement. No other country in the world has police shooting statistics like we do. Have we ever stopped to think about that? There is actually a website dedicated to how many are killed in the United States. See policemappingpoliceviolence.org. So I wanna draw your attention to the Kerner Report, if you've ever heard of that. The Kerner Report was commissioned by President, I'm gonna forget this, Johnson, after a summer of violent, deadly race riots in 1968. And the find, no, 67, excuse me. And then the findings were published in 68. And they found that there was racism, hatred, systemic injustice. It predicted that things were about to get much, much worse. President Johnson was not pleased with these answers. And so the report was pretty much ignored. 
Nothing was done by our government to change things. And so decades later, we have continued discrimination, segregation, oppression. It goes on and on. My motivation in sharing this with you today is to ask you to think, what is our responsibility? If we are white, it is up to us to educate ourselves about how this mess was created, to recognize the scope of the problem now, and to see and accept that we have benefited, whether we wanted to or not, and continue to benefit from the systems of oppression, and then take responsibility to do our part in making sure that things change. Each of us individually may not be able to do that much, but collectively, as we saw in the book about the clowns, we have enormous power for good, and we can do a whole lot, and I believe that we should. To quote surviving member of Colonel Mission, Fred Harris, he wrote a book, and this was in an article which you can look up on Bloomberg.com. The book he published is called Healing Our Divided Society. And in that book, he calls for us to redistribute wealth, strengthen unions, increase affordable housing, raise the minimum wage, give health care to all, commit to equal rights and strong public education, regulate big banks and finance, and invest in our future from the country's infrastructure to science to alternative energy and technology. These are his suggestions and he spent his life researching this. I think they're pretty sound. In 2014, Ta-Nehisi Coates made a case for reparations towards African-American peoples. And perhaps now I wonder if we can begin to discuss or consider what that might look like. Another thing that we could do is Imagine if you were to confront your racist uncle at the next family gathering or the terrible racist joke that your coworker says. And I mean that. Are we acting as allies if we just let these things slide? It all adds up. It all has meaning. If we look at our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of all people, I would imagine that many of us are Unitarian Universalists because we agree with these principles. But agreement is one thing, do we mean it or not? Moving on to the proposed eighth principle, which I would argue every single congregation in our association should eagerly and enthusiastically adopt. I will share it again if you weren't already familiar. Journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. The time is now. I urge you all to do this work for yourself and for our world. It's not appropriate to ask our black and brown friends or family to educate us. Every one of us can dig in and do the research and learn and grow. We can read black authors. We can watch films aimed at black audiences. We can listen to podcasts and dedicate ourselves to growing in this way. And I know we can do this. I believe in you because we are Unitarian Universalists and we know that this is vitally important and it can't wait. 
I love y'all. We can do this together. Amen and blessed be.